0: Stanford University. Thank you, Linda. Uh, It's really
1: uh, fun to be here. Uh, I do feel like I'm at home. (laughs) And uh, so many people I can see in this audience have heard so many parts of this talk before before that (laughs) Uh, I know I'm at home. I better be at home. (laughs) Um, So I'm I'm going to to, uh, uh, tell a part in the narrative that I evolved to write a book about all this research. Uh, so, that will kind of tie it uh, uh, together, in how I proceed through it. Uh, I won't spend as much time as I might, in front for some audiences detailing all the experiments, because that would take forever. I want to give a real overview of, of everything, and try to tie things uh, uh, together as best I can. So, that's the strategy I'm going to use uh, uh, today. Uh, it will focus on stereotype threat and social identity threat. Uh, and uh, I suppose there are a couple things I'd like to, to you know, have you guys take, take home as subtests um, uh, from the talk. One is the uh, importance of the social context or the social psychological context in uh, intellectual function and psychological function more generally, that you know, we tend to think of things um, think of the individual as sort of almost in a decontextualized way, and we don't really, uh, when we think about their level of performance on a test or their functioning in a classroom or something of that, sort, we don't tend to think of the role that the context can play, and that's what this research is all about, really, is to try to draw out a particular way that that context has an effect on that kind of of functioning, and how, not only how it it has an acute effect in an immediate situation, but that it can have long-term effects, because we stay in very regular context over a long period of time. Deciding to go into math is deciding to live your life in a world where that's the context you're in. Uh, and so uh, I want to elucidate these, these pressures. I think that there's that only really, of, of this work and the processes it brings to light, I think that that is only one of a of a pretty large number of processes that are, are, are like this. Uh, so I, I think we need a greater uh, appreciation of the role of these kinds of things can in, in play in, in the way we function. Uh, the, the second thing is, I suppose, uh, I'd like it to illustrate how just trying to figure out a problem can lead to basic research, basic theoretical res- research that has, uh, because it starts out that way, trying to figure out a problem that can have both practical significance and basic (coughs) theoretical significance or or, or help us understand basic human processes. I I think both of the things are perfectly compatible with each other and and we tend to divide them. One area of research is theoretical and basic and another area of research is is applied and practical. And I want to make the case that they're seamlessly, can be seamlessly connected to each other. And I, I see this research as an example of that. And so I'll begin with the problem that this research uh, really uh, started with, uh, uh, trying to figure out. Um, It was a a simple piece of data that when uh, I remember moving uh, many years ago from the University of Washington to the University of Michigan, this must have been uh, almost 25 years ago, uh, and being assigned to a, a, a committee on the retention and recruitment of minority students, uh, as is the fate of minority faculty. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, and being given uh, a set of data that had in it a kind of that I, I couldn't figure it out, and that's really what uh, I'll start with here. Uh, th- this is a figurative representation. This is the actual data that, that uh, I saw that day. But it's, it's, as I say, a figurative representation. Uh, What it does is to graph out the grade point average that students at the University of Michigan got, their total four or five year grade point average as a function of the SAT score or the ACT score that they came in with. And when you do that, you, you get something like that. Uh, that generally speaking, students who come <coughs> in with higher uh, test scores, tend to wind up as with uh, higher college grade point average. Just reflecting the role that pre-college preparation has on, the effect it has on your performance in, in college. And You know, it's, it's, it's as I, as I always point out, this is not a particularly horrible relationship as uh, 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 Your SAT uh, captures about 16 percent, 18 percent of the variance in your freshman grade, and even less of your subsequent grades after that. So we think of these tests,
2: as, as they come to a number, as being as capturing something really very significant. But whatever it is, it goes in for what
1: determines your freshman grade, grade uh, even when it's corrected for restriction of range, uh, uh, is a relatively small part, small part of what of what drives your experience. And for some groups, we been about to see it, the minorities even less. Uh, so there was that line, and then the, uh, uh, this was the interesting line. This was the line for, in, that, in those days, that for African-American students at the University of Michigan. Uh, and what you see here, what this is what sort of puzzled me, uh, is why would it be the case that if you've got a kid with, let's say, 1,200 or 1,300 SAT score right here, why would the African-American students who have the same test score? same preparation for college wind up with lower grades uh, you know if you told me that blacks and whites had, had the whites had a higher average grade point average than blacks I would have not been surprised because uh, race is still a factor that affects your educational opportunity in this society and so even among the students that are, that are strong enough to be admitted to a school like the University of Michigan There's going to be some difference in preparation that might be reflected in an average difference in grade point between the two. So that that wouldn't have been surprising. But when you you sort of in a sense, as this does, equate them for their preparation, I know the test isn't perfect, but it's a rough equation. Why would you get uh, right across the board, even at these very high levels, you know, kids coming in with 1500 SAT scores, uh, uh, and, and reliably, uh, African American students getting lower grades than other students with the same abilities. That's the puzzle. That was the puzzle. Um, we quickly learned that this wasn't just a feature of Michigan. It wasn't just confined to African American students. Right, right away, we found that when you looked at the performance of women in uh, advanced math courses, you got exactly the same pattern same kind of, uh, at every level of test score, women getting lower grades than men in the same uh, class. This didn't happen at entry-level courses at the college level, but it started to happen very quickly as you moved up the ladder in in math and science courses in general. Uh, Then we found that, as you may know, it's called underperformance in in the psychometric literature, and it's everywhere. It's not just at Michigan, it's here, it's, it's everywhere, it's at all levels of, of schooling. It's at law school, it's at medical school, it's at business school. Uh, you get this kind of underperformance that is seemingly tied to uh, identity. And the, the question is, well, what could it be? Could it be direct discrimination? Could it be uh, what? That was the, uh, the question. Uh, and we floundered around for a long time, and I'll save you all that floundering and, and uh, give you what we're proposing as, a, as an answer, a theory that we think explains this. Uh, then I'll give you just a few uh, of, of research examples that are probably quite familiar to you. Uh, and then we'll talk about what makes it worse, this pressure that, 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 we, that we came to in trying to explain this effect, what makes that pressure worse. Uh, what makes it better, and we can talk about remedies. How do you fix this, both at the level of, an inst- of institutions and at the level of, of individuals? What can individuals do to uh, ameliorate these effects uh, as, as much as possible? So, uh, the explanation starts with a very simple textbook uh, definition of social identity, and this is another uh, subtext that. I, I want to uh, draw it underlying here, that uh, I want to convince you that social identity is important, uh, and that it, has a, that it has not only a passing, but these identities have profound effects on our experience, on the life choices we make, the careers we go into, the people we relate to, that social identities are very powerful organizers of, 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 of experience, and that they play a role in that other performance phenomenon I was just talking about. Uh, and this is all I mean by it. Uh, it's the part of our personal identity, sense of who we are, that comes from our group memberships and the social category that we belong to. So, uh, I put up a bunch of them here just to give you an illustration of what I mean. Age, sex, race, religion, uh, region of the country, social class, ideological persuasion, mental health status, physical health status. Uh, <laughs> At any given time, you can make the
2: argument that there are no two people on, on the earth who have the same mixture of social identities. And that maybe even that one source
1: of individuality is that, uh, is that any, so the way these things combine to constitute our experience uh, is, is almost unique. They're like snowflakes. Okay. So the the question then is, well, what makes a uh, social identity uh, important to us in the sense of its having a role in how we function and how we experience uh, life? What makes it important in that sense, its effect on psychological function? Uh, Our answer is uh, identity contingencies. And with that term, uh, all I mean is that uh, what makes a given social identity important? Uh, are the things we have to deal with because we have the identity in particular situations at a particular time? Uh, if you have to, if you don't have, if you have a given feature, and, and you just, it never uh, has any consequences for you in any situations you're in, it will not, in this argument, ever arise to be the level of a social identity. Uh, but if you have to deal with things because you have a given feature, uh, and you have to do that over time, that can start to be, become a, a social identity in the sense of affecting how you function. I, I, I use the, I, I begin this uh, book summarizing this research uh, with an example of, of my own memory of, of being when I first realized I was black. <laughs> 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 uh, and I, I think, I, I, you know, I think it illustrates the, the kind of things that I'm talking about and the, and the way they come together to affect Uh, uh, how you function, how you think about yourself. So I'll read this to you. Uh, I have a memory the first time I realized I was black. It was when at 7 or 8 I was walking home from school with neighborhood kids on the last day of the school year, the whole summer in front of us, and I learned that we, quote, black kids couldn't swim at the pool in our area park except on Wednesday afternoons. And then on those summer Wednesdays, with our swimming suits wrapped tightly in our towels, we filed caravan style out of our neighborhood toward the hallowed pool in the adjoining white neighborhood. It was a strange weekly pilgrimage. It marked the racial order of the time and place, Chicagoland, the 1950s, early 1960s. For me, it was what the psychologist William Cross calls an encounter with the very fact that there was a social order, excuse me, a racial order. The implications of this order for my life seemed massive. A life of swimming only on Wednesday afternoons? Why? Moreover, it turned out to be a portent of things to come. I next found out that we black kids, who by the way lived in my neighborhood and who had been until these encounters just kids, couldn't go to the roller rink except on Thursday nights. We could be regular people but only in the middle of the week. These segregations were hard to ignore and mistakes were costly. Describe a few other of these contingencies of uh, social identity. Uh, with decades of hindsight, I now think I know what was going on. I was recognizing nothing less than a condition of life, most important, a condition of life tied to my race, to my being black in that time and in that place. To my seven or eight year old self, this was a bad condition of life. But the condition itself wasn't the worst of it. For example, had my parents imposed it on me for not taking out the garbage, I wouldn't have been so upset. What got me was that it was imposed on me because I was black, whatever that was. There was nothing I could do about that, and if being black was reason enough to restrict my swimming, then what else would happen because of it? In an interview many years later, a college student, whom you will meet later in this book, if you read it, (laughs) uh, would not that I'm advertising or anything. Uh, He was one of only two whites in an African-American political science class composed of mostly black and other minority students. He too described the condition of life. If he, if he said something that revealed an ignorance of African-American experience or a confusion about how to think about it, then he could well be seen as racially insensitive or worse. Uh, From experiences like these, troubling questions arise. Will there be other conditions? How many? In how many areas of life? Will they be about important things? Can you avoid them? Do you have to stay on the lookout for them? When I encountered my swimming pool restriction, it mystified me. Where did it come from? Conditions of life tied to identity like that still mystify me, but now I have a working idea about where they come from. They come from the way a society at a given time is organized around an identity like race. That organization reflects the history of a place as well as the ongoing individual and group competition for opportunity in the good life. The way Chicago land was organized around race in the late 1950s and early 60s, the rigid housing segregation, the de facto School segregation, the employment discrimination, and so on, meant that black people in that time and place had many restrictive conditions of life tied to their identity, perhaps the least of which was the Wednesday afternoon swimming restriction (laughs) that so worried my seven or eight year old self. This book, this work, is about what my colleagues and I call identity contingencies the things you have to deal with in a situation because you have a given social identity, because you are old, young, gay, a white male, a woman, black, Latino, politically conservative or liberal, diagnosed with a bipolar disorder, a cancer patient, and so on. So you you can see what I'm uh, trying to do in part here is to uh, be actually more of a sociologist than a psychologist and to root. Uh, the experience of identity in the context that that that, that we live in, that, that, and to explain how that grows into a psychological sense of uh, of identity, you can't drop these questions when there are important contingencies tied to them. We psychologists can get very decontextualized and think of identity as something that's inside my head. And it can be either strong or it can be weak, or I can make it strong, or I can make it weak, I can ignore it, I can I can do, I have all these degrees of freedom. And I do want to recognize that there are degrees of freedom about how we experience our social identity. But I also want to uh, reflect the reality that usually they're rooted in some real uh, a set of contingencies that go with an identity Uh, in a given society and how that society is organized. Uh, In Lagos, Nigeria, being black, I've argued, would probably not be a very significant identity because everyone is, and the the society isn't that organized around that Your religion might be a real profound kind of social identity there because the society is so organized around it. Uh, and the significance of race in the United States reflects our history and the profound effect race has had on the way society is is organized so it has attached to it a set of contingencies that uh, aren't easily uh, ignored I think on both sides as I hope you'll see in this research as I uh, uh, go along or all sides I guess is probably a better way to, to put that uh, some contingencies are really concrete and uh, tied to, uh, like, the swimming pool uh, one, the, you know, the segregations of that era, the way the, the, when, when I grew up in the United States, those kinds of segregations were very concrete, you, you ran right into them. Uh, but other contingencies, I would argue, are more abstract and in the air and more uh, delphic and sometimes more con- difficult to convince people that they're important. Uh, and I think stereotype threat is a good example of that kind of, of a contingency. Again, it's not the only one, but it's uh, a, such a contingency, but it is, I think, a, a, an important one. And it is very simple. Simply being in a situation for which uh, a negative stereotype about one of your identities uh, is relevant. That's a big word to underline right there. When a, you're in a situation and a, for which a negative stereotype is relevant. Uh, then you know, at some level, you could be judged or treated in terms of a stereotype. And if you care about what you're doing, what makes you vulnerable to a stereotype threat, right, is caring about uh, what you're doing in that situation. Uh, if you care about it, then the prospect of being reduced automatically to a, ster- a negative stereotype is upsetting and distracting. Uh, I've often used the example of, you know, being a, a, the chair of the psychology department, uh, at a time when it got moved from being a natural science to being a social, uh, from being a social science to being a natural science. And as I interacted with uh, the Dean, representing the interests of the psychology department, uh, I began presenting the psychology department as if it was a big and hard-edged science, with big machines, like <laughs> MRI machines and, and, and uh, the whole like. Uh, and I saw myself after a while uh, doing this and asked, why am, I, why am I making such a stress on the, uh, on the hard physiological neuro side of, of psychology? And, and I come away with an answer of stereotype threat. And it's not a stereotype really about... Um, uh, my race or my age or my gender is a stereotype about my discipline and that I think this guy this chemist who I'm wrestling with uh, uh, for resources might view my discipline as a less rigorous science maybe, than astrophysics or something like that so I have to without really being aware of it I find myself presenting to him uh, a case for us being as worthy as any other science in in the business. He hasn't said a word to me. That's that's a very important uh, feature of the phenomenon. Uh, He hasn't said a word, but I'm I'm a member of this culture. I know he's a member of this culture. That's all I need to know to know that he knows the stereotype and that therefore he can see me in terms of the stereotype because it's relevant in this situation. It's relevant and you'll feel the pinch of it. Uh, Whistling Vivaldi is another uh, story Uh, from Brent Staples who's uh, an African-American editorialist for the New York Times and he writes in his autobiography about going to graduate school at the University of Chicago and walking down the streets of Hyde Park and realizing that his mere presence was making whites nervous. And they would avoid eye contact, they would go to the other side of the street, and so he knew that he was being seen through the lens of a negative stereotype about his his, uh, race and age problem. Uh, and so as time went on, accidentally he goes starts to go down the street in a distracted way one day, whistling Vivaldi. <laughs> I mean, I've only got one human being that can really do that. <laughs> but he, he said he could do it beautifully. So <laughs> i have to put him to test someday. But um, so as soon as he does that, uh, he realizes that everybody around him relaxes. Because he has behaved in a way that punctures the relevance of the stereotype through which he's being seen. So now he's just a a graduate student walking down the street. Uh, Before that, he could be a young, menacing African-American male on the south side of Chicago. So how is he going to be seen? So that's the the way these stereotypes uh, uh, work, is the
3: the argument. And
1: uh, so do they have anything to do with this underperformance that we started with? Uh, That's the basic uh, uh, question. And uh, we put it to test in a very simple experiment that uh, I I hope illustrates this for you. This is the very first experiment that we ever did uh, on stereotype threat, Uh, Steve Spencer and I. uh, And we uh, brought really talented, dedicated women and men math students into the room, into a test room, one at a time, and we gave them a half hour section of the graduate record exam you take if you're a math major. This is a mean math test. It would be very frustrating. We wanted it to be frustrating because if you were a woman, the argument is, this is very important, if you're a woman, frustration on this test makes that stereotype about your ability, your math ability, that's afoot in the society. Let's call it the Larry Summers stereotype. (laughs) It it brings that that Larry Summers stereotype right in there to with you at, at, the, at the time you're taking this test. So now, in addition to taking the test, you're probably refuting that stereotype and maybe trying doubly hard to, to disprove that stereotype, and you, you're bringing up memories of how important it, it is and how much your parents told you to overcome these stereotypes. And there's a lot of stuff now that has moved into your take, take up your cognitive resources uh, in addition to the test that, that you've got. And sure enough, when you do that, women score a standard deviation worse than the men, even though, as I uh, say, we carefully selected these students for being really good at math. These, they were not just incidentally good, they were uh, dedicated to, the, to, to uh, math as a, as a career path. Uh, so, um, Larry Summers might say, on, the, on hearing that finding alone, that uh, all you've done is is uh, support his idea. That it turns out that maybe uh, there is a biological that there is a biological difference between men and women with regard to math ability, and it manifests itself when you give people a very difficult math test. That's when you'll see it. So that's all you've got. You gave these groups a, ma- a difficult math test at the frontier of their skills, and sure enough, uh, the women didn't do as well as the men. But that's just what i would agree. So to, to, to separate these two explanations, and this is, is important because really, everything else in, in my life for the last 20 years, seemingly, depends on how this experiment was going to uh, turn out. <laughs> <laughs> um, not quite everything in my life, but a lot of it. <laughs> yeah. uh, the, the, uh, uh, the, the two ideas that contested are here are the biological idea and the stereotype threat idea. So we had to redo the experiment in a way so that uh, women would, not ex- would take the same difficult test but would not experience stereotype threat. Right. And then C, if you took that pressure out, their performance should go up if we're right. If Larry Summers is right and you take that pressure out, it isn't going to make any difference. You're still going to score, score with us. So we eventually came to a very simple uh, idea about how to take that pressure out. We told the men and the women just before they took the difficult math test, look, you may have heard that women don't do as well as men on difficult standardized math tests. But that's not true for this particular test.
2: <laughs>
1: the Particular test you're taking today is just women and men never show any difference on this. No, no, no. the subtext is any frustration you feel on this test has got nothing to do with you being a woman. It could reflect that you're that you're not as good at math as you thought as an individual, but it wouldn't reflect that you're not as good at math as you thought because you're a woman, because this test is insensitive to showing that kind of difference. <laughs>
2: So as soon as you do that, women's performance goes up to match that of equally skilled men.
1: <sighs> <laughs> <laughs> you can imagine the relief in the uh, lab at the time
2: that those data. Uh, and, and this was in the early days, this was 20 years ago when we started when we started to present this and people would just be unbelieving that,
1: uh, finding that you could actually, that that uh, could happen. Then uh, we did it with race. Um, you know, black. One of the better studies uh, compares black, black and whites. Uh, give them a, 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 an IQ test. The r- Raven's Progressive Matrices IQ test, which is a non-verbal IQ test. You, you get a, a square like that. It's got a design on it. Then you get five little squares with designs on it, and you have to pick which of the five little squares matches the design on the big square. And it starts out real easy, and it gets really hard. And if you present this test as an IQ test, or you don't say anything about it, black score a, a standard deviation worth than white. Which is, interestingly, the exact size of the difference in IQ between blacks and whites in the general population. But if you give them the exact same test, exact same test, and you tell them, this is not a test of cognitive abilities said nothing to do with cognitive abilities it's just a, a puzzle just have fun with it do the best you can black score just the same as white um, again a finding which people find very hard to <laughs> I, I have found <laughs> uh, very hard to, to take at face value uh, I, again, think the best account of it is that when uh, an African-American is taking a difficult uh, IQ test, there's that stereotype out there that's ancient in this society about intelligence. And as you experience the frustration, you, uh, again, start allo- have to allocate some of your cognitive resources to defending against that, that allocation. That's in the stereotype. Nobody, again, has said anything. Uh, no one has to be in the room. It's like me with the... With, the, uh, with my chairman. No one has to be in the world. Uh, but you know as a member of this culture that what people think, you know what people think. Think of yourself as having you know, an aunt that uh, thinks of your family in a particular way. Maybe they think that your family brings doesn't bring enough food to the Thanksgiving dinner.
2: <laughs>
1: and you know your aunt, based on some event that happened 20 years ago, that she thinks this. So here you are with your family preparing food to take to the Thanksgiving dinner. You know, just piling on stuff. Let's bring an extra pie. You know, Let's bring an extra. Get a big turkey to deflect this. So here's the power of this, uh, this possible perception that this, uh, this single person has, has on your uh, on life. Imagine if you thought everybody in society thought that. Imagine if you went to school and you thought everybody in society knew this stereotype and could think that about you every time you raised your hand and you made a mistake in class. or you, that, that, Then you start to get the, the, the generality of it. And of course, stereotype that has a lot to do with, you know, it if if, takes a lot of different forms. People have looked at it in sports. Um, you can make white, brilliant, um, engineering graduate students at Stanford underperform on a standardized test. If you tell them just before they take the test, oh, do the best you can, this is a test on which Asians do better than whites. <laughs> <laughs> now, their frustration is interpreted in the light of that other group's positive stereotype. And they begin to wonder, "Is do they have some sort of categorical limitation in this area? And they have to defend against that, and that takes energy away from performance on the test. And and, and it goes down or just think about just general relations we did a study on uh, well what's the form of uh, this is with uh, Phil goth what's the form of stereotype threat that white probably feel the most well they probably feel a, a very powerful form of stereotype threat when they're um, uh, just in an interracial conversation that boy if they don't get it right or if they somehow stumble onto something awkwardly said that maybe they could be seen as racially annoying and or even racist. That's a stereotype out there about whites in the society and it is relevant in that kind of, uh, uh, of of an interaction. So we did a, a study <laughs> uh, in which we had white males think they were going to interact with either two black guys or two white guys and they thought they were going to talk about uh, either Love and Relationships, which is an easy topic to talk about. You, you, you can avoid getting into race on that topic. But the other topic was Racial Profile. And just before uh, they entered into one of these conversations... Uh, We said, look, we're going to go down the hall and get your two conversation partners and bring them back uh, for the for the conversation. And we would like you to arrange the chairs for the for the conversation. Mm -hmm. There's the three chairs in the room. Would you arrange the chairs? So you can probably sense as soon as they arrange the chairs, the experiment's over. Mm -hmm. What 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 you're interested in here is not so much intellectual performance. Mm -hmm. Remember, stereotypes affects all kinds of function What you're interested in here uh, is. How are they going to position themselves for this conversation as a function of how much vulnerability to stereotyping they they feel? So you can probably predict the results that when these guys were going to talk to two white guys about anything, they put the three chairs very close together. When they thought they were going to talk to two black guys about love and relationships, they put the three chairs close together. But when they thought they were going to talk about Racial profile with two black guys. They put the two black guys over here, and they put themselves <laughs> here, some distance away. Now, here's the non-obvious thing, and this is an important point. Uh, who do you think, put in that condition, put their chairs the farthest away? The people that were relatively less prejudiced, or the people that were relatively more prejudiced? Less. less. Yeah. Um, because if you're less pre- pre- prejudiced. You, you just really would hate to be seen you just would really hate that and so here you are in this situation There's nothing to gain uh, why would you risk that there's a there's a, uh, a great story illustrating this by I forget her name it's a book on integration and she calls this the, the what she's African American and she she describes what she calls the Southwest Airlines first-class ticket for black
2: people. <laughs> and, uh,
1: the, the, the first, like, the, the, the ticket is this, that, that when she gets to, you because know, on Southwest Airlines, you board, you get whatever, you know, first come, first serve for whatever seat you want. So she gets to the airport a little late, and she's hoping that a black guy will be in the front of the line. Or, or early in the life. So he, he he goes on the airplane, he takes, he flops down in a nice big first class seat, and then nobody else sits next to <laughs> him. So she comes along and flops right down next to him. Hey, what's happening? <laughs> so... Uh, so, that's the same kind of phenomenon here. It's like, you know, the, the, the white, so what, why would white people avoid this sitting next to this guy even though he's got this prime seat available? Uh, well, they, they might do a simple kind of calculation that goes something like, well, look, I'm just trying to get to Cleveland, and if I sit next to this guy, it could be a bail. Oh. <laughs> that's stereotype threat. The prospect of, that's our history visiting us in the present, affecting how we function in the present. We know a lot about how it affects uh, what it does to you to interfere with intellectual performance. Uh, You know, almost every cardiac indicator is elevated. Blood pressure, heart rates, galvanic skin response. The part of the brain that you recruit to solve uh, problems is suppressed. The part of the brain that you recruit to stay vigilant to threat is more uh, activated. And it's like multitasking, I think, it's the simplest uh, everyday term for what goes on. You're doing two things at once now. And you know how we have to do that very often. And stereotype threat right, is just another um, thing that does that. But when it's in a domain that's very important to you, that multitasking is intense and can really affect how you function in a situation. And again, I think the important thing to realize here is that the experiments are all cute, one-time slices, so you can see the process. But you, uh, you, you, you should play them out as a chronic feature of a person's life in a, con- in a situation. That woman who wants to major in math is going to be in a math, math classes from all the way along. That's not something that just happens once and goes away. And so you can begin to see what the sense of discomfort, which is probably the word she use to describe that, what sense that can have on her choice to go into that field or go into a different field. Uh, what makes it worse, you know, weak or strong? That's a critical thing in getting to remedies is, well, what makes it weak or strong? Um, we we were psychologists, but we naturally first turned in that direction. And, and when people talk about this research, when you tell a, 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 a colleague or a reporter or almost, when you talk about it, people do something that, like, I, I have to confess, infuriates me. But <laughs> it's, it's exactly what we did initially. And that is, they think, oh, these are people who believe in this stereotype. And that's what, and it's a self fulfilling prophecy that there is a, a feature of low self esteem or belief in the stereotype that is critical for the stereotype to have the effects I'm mm-hmm. just pointing that's what it is and that's how a psychologist would think because the psychologist is thinking in a decontextualized way we're not articulating the social context not even the social psychological context we're just articulating what's in there so uh, you just go to that kind of and that's the way lay people think in this society lay people are a lot more like psychologists than they are sociologists or anthropologists (laughs) Uh, we tend to think in that in that in that way. So the logical thing is to think, well, these people are people who they are they are women who have somehow internalized this negative stereotype. We're African Americans who have internalized this, this stereotype about their 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 abilities, and that is what's triggered in a test situation, and that's what causes the underperformance. So we might have thought that, but then. Uh, you, you can see at least the subtext of everything I've been describing so far is almost the opposite of that. That it isn't the women in the group who have the, the lowest confidence in their math ability who show these effects. In fact, they don't show these effects. They don't show these effects. The people who show these effects are the women or, and the members of the group who are the most identified with the domain of performance. They care the most. They've been the best. They've got the biggest con- the most confidence. It's what makes you susceptible to this threat is not believing in a stereotype. It's caring about how you fare in the domain. And if you stop caring about how you fare in the domain, if you're an African-American student in here, uh, city of Los Angeles, if Joseph and I did a study once that looked at that, You you don't, you know, and you you don't care about school anymore, then you don't care whether this test is about cognitive abilities or or it's a puzzle. You don't care. It doesn't make any difference to you because you don't care about how well you do in school. Your life is predicated somewhere else. But for that that student who, who cares about how well they do in school, the prospect of being reduced to a stereotype or confirming a stereotype is upsetting and distracting. And it's very difficult for us to separate these two kinds of students. In that Los Angeles high school, you had both kinds of students, but their performance looked the same. Black kids were underperforming. One because one set, because they didn't care anymore about school. It was over. Maybe they had enough stereotype threat and they just said, hell with this. i I, I got to be here, but uh, I'm not doing this. Uh, and, or, and the other set was still very caring about school, but under the pressure of confirming a stereotype, they, they got distracted and underperformed. So that, that's something, I think, in the general understanding of these underperformance phenomena, we don't really appreciate And, and, and we direct all of our remediation as if, if you've got one kind of problem here when you've got at least two kinds of problems. What makes it worse are cues in a situation that signal contingencies. That's where it comes back to this contingency idea. And that's why that idea is, is important in understanding the whole complex of, of, of things here. Is that if I walk into a room, uh, to this day there are and, and you see and there are certain features of the room uh, you could worry about whether you're going to be stereotyped, whether people will really see you without stereotype, uh, and that's that's all it takes. It, so what makes this so what makes this pressure intense are cues that add up like this. I've got an example of this from from uh, Sandra Day O'Connor who. Uh, Uh, explaining her uh, Supreme Court experience on the Supreme Court this is a true story Uh, I think I think I've got these dates right but on May 13 2003 six weeks before the Supreme Court decision on affirmative action was announced I was perfectly confident that I knew how that decision would go Uh, and the reason I was perfectly confident that I knew how that decision would go. It was because I heard a radio interview of Sandra Day o- O'Connor. Uh, and she was talking about her uh, autobiography. It had nothing to do with affirmative action. But she was just talking about her, or she just published an autobiography. And I, and I, I can tell from this that it, it would go, well, the, the important thing to realize here is that Sandra Day O'Connor was a swing vote in both uh, uh, cases. There were two cases uh, from Michigan up before the court Law school, undergraduate school. She, would, the, the other justices were all sort of pre-known, and she was a swing boat. How would she go? Would determine the fate of it. And I heard this interview, and I knew which way it would, it would go. And here's a little bit of the uh, of the interview. Um, it was about the, her autobiography titled "The Majesty of the Law," which began with her youth on the Lazy B Ranch in Arizona and proceeded all the way through her time on the Supreme Court. When Nina Totenberg, this is uh, the, the NPR uh, interviewer, when Totenberg asked O'Connor about her early years on the court as the only woman, O'Connor said that the experience was asphyxiating. Everywhere the Sandra went, the press was sure to go, she said, and noted that each, after each decision, there would be a little add-on. What did Justice O'Connor do in the case? Questions hung over her appointment. Was she good enough? Did she have feminist meanings? Was she sufficiently feminist, hyper-scrutiny from all camps? Then Totenberg asked O'Connor, When Justice Ginsburg, the second woman appointed to the court, arrived, it made things better? O'Connor replied, Oh, it was just night and day. The minute Justice Ginsburg arrived, the pressure was off. We just became two of nine justices. It was just such a welcome change. On hearing this as I drove along, I felt that I knew how the affirmative action decisions would go. I felt I knew because this statement revealed that O'Connor understood the concept of critical mass, the base, uh, the basis of Michigan's defense. She understood what it was like to have critical mass of her identity in the in- environment, and what it was like not to have critical mass. Uh, <clears throat> critical mass is a is a complicated. Uh, a construct. That is, you can have, in, in her case, she may have had critical mass with having only one other woman uh, on the Supreme Court, but in the university community, you never say you had critical mass. If you had three women or three Latinos. on the, you, you, it, It's a, it's a, a funny con, a, a construct. But basically, it tells you whether there are enough of your identity in this, in people of your identity in the situation that the contingencies couldn't be too bad. Uh, and, and they couldn't be just uh, uh, unsurmountable. Uh, Obama does have this kind of effect. Uh, 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 I think he does signal that that the
2: contingencies have changed to some degree, and, and that that makes this that identity a a,
1: a, a very a, a very different thing. Uh, I could go on with this, but I'm running out of time, so I want to I want to get to some uh, conclusions. But uh, the basic point here is that uh, a lot of cues in a situation can signal this. Um, I've got the experience of of a graduate student in math at Stanford walking into the uh, math department and seeing on the on the wall all of the pictures of the great mathematicians who are all males and she gets to her office and she uh, finds that the only bathroom in the building is with well, only one woman's bathroom in the building is way down on the in the basement and with sort of Jimmy under the stairwell down there and, and uh, th- these are cues these are cues that you may not consciously th- Ever want to use as, a, as an argument, you're a white male, you walk into a situation and somebody says something that's a little bit like this This uh, student I interviewed who walked into a, uh, an African American political science class and found themselves to be one of only uh, two whites out of a class with about 50 students. And, and uh, uh, the, the, the topic of the class was uh, uh, showing Kunta kunte. Being whipped <laughs> and people were giving their impressions of this and so then after that the person goes around the room the, the professor goes around the room and asks people to say their names and by the time he got to this this white kid he, he couldn't hardly pronounce his whole
3: name. <laughs> he, he was so nervous. <laughs> uh, again, we, you know, we don't operate independently from
2: context. Context is, is, is usually important and the context here is conveyed. Uh, by these cues, and the, what the cues are conveying is, what
1: are there contingencies here that I might have to deal with? I don't know, and until maybe there's a there's an ambiguity there, uh, and you have to kind of sort through that ambiguity to get a sense of of what you know, that because that's a task until you can resolve it. You leave the situation where you come to some appraisal of the situation such that it's manageable in, in some way. Um, there's a lot of stuff about how people handle threat in, in, in general. And I think at this point, uh, it becomes a standard uh, a problem of how do people uh, uh, handle threat. There usually is a, an appraisal called the primary appraisal where is the situation threatening? Well, that takes a while. I'm sorting through these cues to find out if it is, if there is some threat in here. And then the secondary appraisal is, well, it's threatening, but can I cope with it? Do I have the skills and the circumstances to cope with it? And you can begin to see where the logic with regard to remedy is going to turn. Uh, uh, I think it turns in both directions. Uh, you, it, we should do as much as we can to uh, reduce the cubes and to reduce the contingencies tied to important situations. Certainly, like a, a, a school classroom, <coughs> there should be a, a, a self-conscious effort to examine that kind of an environment—a workplace, a classroom—for. Uh, the kind of cues. I think that the, the Supreme Court's defense of affirmative action, uh, although I understand it's coming back up again, uh, that, um, is a very sound defense. You can't expect uh, students to function at the same level when one group of students is under a real consistent chronic form of identity threat compared to another. Uh, in, in getting women into the STEM fields, I think we have to be uh, very sensitive about that. What kind of situation are we asking them to go to go into and to stay into, live their, to live their whole lives under, that, under that, that, that Larry Summers hypothesis. Can you imagine that? The president of your university says that he doubts that
2: you really have the ability, based on your category, to succeed in the situation.
1: That's, that's not a passing pressure. That's just Delphic and abstract. That's a very concrete feature of your experience, of how, you're, how you are going through it. So I, I think that's why I'm paying attention to the, to the cues and situations, comments like that, the, cr- the critical uh, mass issue, uh, leaders saying, saying things that are welcoming and, 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 and encompassing, are really genuinely important. They can sound like window dressing, but I think they're very genuinely important. Uh, then, then the, the the question is: Well, what, what can individuals do? Um, well, there's a lot of uh, of search, itemizing a, a number of a long list of of things. Maybe uh, in the question and answer uh, period, I'll have a chance to uh, enumerate uh, some of those. Uh, let me just give you a general idea uh, that will sound funny, maybe, but it's an idea that I can't seem to. Uh, I talk myself completely out of uh, and I think it's maybe a general it starts to become a general psychological principle uh, and that idea is that um, when we're in situations we have an implicit narrative about that situation an implicit working narrative about the situation what it means to us what's going to happen in it who's in it what it means and so it's it's so much the water we swim in that we're not often very uh, aware or uh, conscious of, of having this, this narrative. Uh, but I, I think this is where a, the sense of threat can, can lie to uh, a, a big degree. That it can lie in how I understand my situation. I, I remember when I went to graduate school I was the only African-American Uh, in my social psychology program, where my whole psychology department back then was, like, prehistoric times. And uh, uh, I I felt all of these pressures intensely. I can remember just looking at my hands and just seeing them. And, I mean, I I guess I was that lit up about the the, the whole thing, Uh, trying to figure out, well, what did it mean? And and, and at the time, psychology was preoccupied with race and IQ and genetics. and, uh, you know, we had a guy down the hall who would use the N-word, and they would have these seminars where we would openly talk about whether my particular group of people were genetically inferior or not.
2: <laughs> so I've never had any tolerance for that issue. <laughs> in case anybody wants to ask
1: about it. <laughs> Don't go there. <laughs> Uh, It's just, so all these cues were were there, and I felt very alienated. Then I did start, uh, my advisor was a nice guy, uh, and he just worked the hell out of me. As I hypothesized, he was coming up for tenure, and I was his only graduate student. He had to get his work done, and so he seemed to believe in me.
2: (laughs) Uh,
1: You know, I could look in his eyes, and he seemed to believe in me. And, and, uh, And we actually got some things done. And then we got a we got a little paper published, and uh, man, that was like transformative. Mm-hmm. And and uh, why would that event have anything to do with this larger narrative about the threat I was under? Well, I think what it what it did was to distance me from that. It it, it gave, I started to assign in in, in math terms a different probabilities to all the contingencies. You know, like, yeah, the guy is a racist down the hall, but still, I published his paper, it's going to be in a journal, there's room for me here. There, the, the, the the racism that is obviously here is not so bad as to interfere with my function uh, uh, in, in this situation, to completely defeat me in this situation. So with just that little bit of room uh, to move in, then you get, you know, you, you keep at it, you get some... You get some more little successes, you deal with some failures, you get some more little successes, you deal with some more failures, and you start to believe, you know, there's going to be a path here, even though there are some real clear races here, (coughs) that have made no bones about it, Uh, uh, but still there's a path here for, for, for me. So I, I think in, in a, that's what I mean by a narrative. The narrative changed, and the thing in the narrative that changed was the probability I attached to these threatening contingencies and the things that that could consume me. At, at the outset, I felt like I was going to be suffocated by that situation. Like I like it, I was just a moment struggle to get through the the day. I felt that it that it that it, it shrouded every interaction and every every uh, experience in class, and I I could never raise my hand because that would just oh goodness suppose I didn't get it right or suppose I missed it something or suppose suppose suppose, suppose. And so uh, with that narrative in place with tightly woven sense of threat where the contingencies were always very near at hand it was nearly suffocating. but with experience you get a broader sense of it. Uh, Greg Walton who's going to be I see on your speaker series here has got a great uh, study where I my interpretation is that he almost injects into college students uh, uh, a good narrative. Uh, and the narrative is look, it's going to be difficult at the outset when you come to college. You're going to feel a little strange, maybe. I did. This is this narrative <laughs> being given to them by a student who's just a little older than them in, in college. I felt weird, but then uh, as time went by, uh, you know, I, I did some things and I took some classes and I found a couple of them really interesting and then. Uh, then I found that this place had all these other things to offer, and my whole, the possibilities of my life started to expand, and I, you know, it starts kind of negative and, and normalizes the anxiety that the person might feel, the narrative, and then it kind of opens up possibilities, uh, and their grades go way up. That's the, that's the point. The connection between these things and, and intellectual uh, performance. We think of intellectual performance when we think about schooling. as how do we get these cognitive basic skills hammered into these kids in the quickest possible way. And all of the discourse about it, that's one thing that amazes me of, of coming into the world more with, more, with both feet of, of, of education is that we think of human beings as almost little cognitive operators and at the context they're in so that, you know, we've got one uh, basic skill, drill and kill kind of uh, philosophy after the next. That what, what we need before these kids can ever get to the level of competence that they need to participate in a broad broad discussion, what we need is to sort of subject them to 85 years of, of drill and kill to, to uh, get basic skills together. Well, of course you have to do that, but I'm not sure it has to come in that order. And I'm not sure that the drill and kill doesn't cost more than it, it, it benefits. Uh, and I, the reason I say that is because I think we are fuller human beings in the social context that, uh, is, is, is a lot more of what's going on. People often learn how to read when they discover that, you, that reading will get them into things that they really love. Then all of a sudden they read. And all those things that we thought needed to be carefully taught are just done. I'm I'm overstating it, but you sort of get my my, my point here, that I I think uh, our models need to have a more complete model of of, of human functioning than than we currently it seems to dominate the current discourse okay, before I get in further trouble, I better stop there (laughs) and uh, (laughs) let anybody ask questions that would like to, thank you
4: Uh, I think is the idea that there would be a mic going
3: around or we're gonna pass of see how these are wearing Let's see if we can get a mic first. I something. can show. Okay, teacher board boys. Board board. <laughs> <Board voice. laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Uh, that was wonderful. Uh, just a terrific uh, introduction in terms of your ideas and, and I feel relieved, uh, at least in some ways. But the, the one thing I'm, I'm caught on is, is the notion of the trick, that when you talk to the uh, students, um, the women who are going to do the math test, or the African Americans, you in a sense trick them. Is that fair to say, you said this test isn't about women and men, or this test has been proven uh, not to involve those factors. So there's there's that element, I don't want to use, well, deception might be a term. And, I just wondered if you could address that in terms of uh, an approach that goes beyond that. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll concede to that term
1: uh, uh, in the sense that you can't do these things at home. Uh, you, um, uh, and I, I, would, I would put it this way: I, I think almost any kind of science, you know, even if you're talking about uh, a physical science, you have to do, you, you try to do things, you know, like a linear accelerator. You do things in a laboratory. You can't do. In, in, in real life. Uh, but you do them so that you can see what's going on in real life. And, and I think that's the, how I would characterize the uh, manipulations in these uh, experiments, the instructions. It is indeed the case that women never take uh, a difficult math without that, in this society, without that stereotype being there. Uh, uh, and, and in order to see its effect, you have to bring them into the laboratory and do something kind of like a trick. To remove that pressure so you can see the effect that that pressure has on their uh, performance we also went to Poland where the stereotype is not nearly as prevalent in society and you, and you can see again the effect is much weaker there. 50% of almost every stem field are women in that society and so you don't see the same kind of a stereotype threat effects for women in math there that you do in the United States or through much of the world. And there are societies uh, like it. There's societies like that where race is not really, uh, doesn't have a real powerful uh, stereotype attached to it. So, uh, yeah, it, it, it is that way. That's, that's what the, that I, I just think that's what a scientist has to do in order to sort of pull out and pull into view what the process is. Now, uh, how do you fix it? Uh, and what does that mean for fixing it in, in real life? Uh, I, I think that's where you, you... Now you have the principle from the uh, laboratory, and you have to take the principle, and you have to develop strategies that have that effect in real life, that affect the narrative, that reduce the cues, that, that, that uh, so on. When, when, when Greg comes here, uh, I'm sure he's going to have a long list of uh, of things, but simple things like, how do you give, how does a white professor give critical feedback to a black student? This was Jack Cohen's dissertation, yeah, the here. Um, and he's, he's basically saying, okay, you guys uh, did the trick, but now let me see what it would be like in, in, in a real life situation. And what he finds is, he has them write these essays, um, and he takes the essay, they go home, he grades the essay. Uh, These are difficult essays. He grades them and gives them real critical feedback. And then when they come back, uh, he gives them the feedback. And what he's interested in is how much do they trust the feedback and how motivated are they by the feedback as a function of how it's given. And the way it's given, he varies to see if it will do, in this situation, what these tricks did in the experiment. And what he found is that something that fits very easily into everyday life if you just give the, the
2: critical feedback, uh, black students don't, if you just say, here's, here's your essay,
1: uh, here's the feedback. Uh, or if you say, look, uh, you're a really nice guy, I know your brother, oh man, you know, here's the feedback. <laughs> you, know, you give a bromide up front and the, uh, <laughs> kind of ease the pain of the critical feedback, which we all do. Uh, if, if black students at Stanford don't trust it. And the reason they don't trust it, you can see it's very obvious when you put yourself in their situation. They don't know whether that feedback is coming from the work they did or from the stereotypes about their group. There's a genuine confusion, attributional confusion about where it's coming from. And you can't rule out one uh, uh, and just prefer that. You can't go into false consciousness. It's a rational conf- a confusion. So, so what he did was to give the feedback, the feedback that worked. Was uh, to tell because it was all presented that they were writing these essays for possible publication in a journal or teaching, and so he said, "A, we're using very high standards to evaluate these essays. B, I've read your essay and I think you can meet that standard. Here's the feedback. When when they get the feedback that way, they go crazy in terms of. I mean, 75 percent of them take it home and work on the on on the essay." It's not, it's, not, it's not a course for credit. This is an experiment. But several, they, they take it home and work on it and want, you to, want to bring it back for more feedback. So that's, a, that's an example of something in real life that corresponds to what we were doing in, in, an, in an experiment because it, it takes the principle identified in the experiment and develops a strategy for addressing it in, in an important real-life situation like that.
5: Um, (laughs) So
0: a lot of the social identities you identified are almost binary male, female, or black and white. And so I'm curious if the research talks a little bit about identities that could be mixed, either mixed race, so I know the Asian stereotype about math conflicts with the female stereotype about women. I'm just curious, is there anything that talks to... Um, mixed, let's say my daughter is half Asian, um, how that affects our, social ident- our sexual identities where you know, you can identify yourself in different ways, how does that kind of play
1: in? Yeah, there's, there's two questions in there. One, one we, there has been research and, and the other, there really hasn't been. I, I don't know yet. Maybe there has been research on mixed identities. Uh, but there has been research looking at which identity do you make salient before they take the math test. And this was done with Asian women who have two uh, identities with opposing stereotypes about their skills uh, um, that are relevant can become relevant on the math test. So, so uh, what what happens? Um, the when when the uh, when in one experiment that I'm remembering, they just before they take the difficult math test, they have to fill out the questionnaire, and one, and in one case, it ends with their uh, ethnic identity. That's a positive stereotype. They perform well when that's activated. And another condition, they have to fill in their gender. That's a negative stereotype. And they don't perform nearly as well when that is the uh, case. So uh, I'm looking at Nellie M. back there, who's done a lot of this <laughs> kind of research on this. And you, can, you should get in this same speaker series here, because you know a lot more of what's happened in recent years than I do. But but uh, uh, that, that's, that's a, a very interesting question, and a lot of it does seem to, to have to do with, with again, which, what, what identity the cues make salient. I was going to say
4: that I had a group for experiments differently. I didn't really see a trick. I saw it as a good quantitative kind of study where you have a control group and then you have a treatment. And the treatment was that they um, were given um, a statement that they were actually going to be successful or whatever. I can't remember all the details. So and I know that in, um, at least in education, because that's my field, it's hard sometimes to come up with those good quantitative studies. So I think that, I didn't see it as a trick. I saw it as a good sure. research study. So I just wanted to mention that. And then I thought that your, I really liked the way that you, you um, Broached um, the stereotypes. I think that one of the things. I'm bicultural. I grew up in Kenya and half African American, so you can't really tell my diversity in my skin. Uh, but it's very different. Um, my family um, had Christmas trees in our house, but our cousins didn't. Uh, they just killed the goat to be killed the goat. Dad had a Christmas tree, uh, you know. So, but when you're talking about in West Africa, it's so true that the dominant. Um, I think part of me being confident was I was, there were a lot of black people in Kenya when I grew up. Um, So, but when you came here, I was a minority, you know, and that had its own consequences and its own feelings. But I thought that you really expanded it. And I think for me as a teacher, um, I think you made me aware of how my Caucasian students might feel when I talk about uh, the issues of race. And that sometimes I think that Our culture, our society does not like to talk about it so much, so I try to kind of really bring it up. But I think that I need to really be sensitive that there are those in my classrooms who are um, not biased and don't want to be perceived that way. And so when I present it, I need to really uh, be curious and not really um, in my statements. So I just want to say thank you. So my class is in here and outside.
0: Um, I'll try to do this out loud. First of all, uh, we're really enjoying the work. I want you to know that, and this is kind of our experiment that goes to what you were talking about. We have been um, doing out pedagogy. is something that's called pedagogy of confidence. And the idea is to start with underperforming students, not identifying their weaknesses, which is what people usually do with underperforming students, especially with NCLB and that kind of thing, but instead to take the whole first month of school to identify these students' strengths. That's what they're told. Now the interesting part that gets to the imperative narrative that you're talking about is teachers coming back and saying, we're trying to do this with our students, but they can't come up with any of their own strengths. They literally can't come, now why? Because of course, These students are never told that they have strengths. In fact, it's the exact opposite. So we had to try two different things. One is we started by identifying the student's strength Mm -hmm. ourselves by saying we're going to go around and give you a strength. As soon as we told them what their strength was, it emancipated them. They all of a sudden found all these strengths that they had. But the other way was working with smaller groups of students and telling them they, they were identified because they were leaders. And then when we were asking them you know, to identify their strengths, they had all these strengths. So my point is that your idea about the trick is really more how do you liberate or emancipate somebody from feeling those contingencies. So thank you for your work because you inspired us.
2: Thank, thank you, Linda. You.
1: I can see this word trick is going to hang around. How would you say
0: trick I guess it's in the air. So I'm reading Confidence Men by Ron Susskind and one of the smaller themes in that book is how women in the White House felt like they were being discriminated against high-level women like Christina Romer, And it brings up A question for me of people like Barack Obama who have lived with this phenomenon their whole lives I would have thought they'd be more sensitive to it and it confuses me that there were these complaints by women on his staff about sexism and I wonder if you have any um, insight into that
2: phenomenon.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, my, my first reaction, was, was Larry Summers in that one? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, actually. I, I, I think it takes, uh, uh, you know, I, I've kind of been humbled by this research myself over, over the years. I, I think it takes some... Uh, uh, Time and, and thinking and you have to grow a little to uh, realize what's going on in, 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 these, every, in these everyday schooling and, um, you know, workplace kind of situations. So I, I'm not
2: that surprised by that. Uh, uh, even though Obama, he, you know, he's
1: had to deal with it all, all of his life, but would he have this idea in mind? Would he really realize that he may have to do a little something reduce the cues in the situation or change the, the, the appearance of contingencies and, and really if you've got a guy like uh, who, who Larry Summers who strides in the room and ignores everybody that might be all cool if it's all boys then every the boys are kind of used to that they kind of doesn't mean the same thing but uh, when, when you start to have a diverse situation into which that behavior appears then it starts to have a very different
2: meaning for, for, for people just because because of the processes that that, that we're talking about here, and, and I think it's I think it's a powerful but it's a nuanced enough point uh, in, in
1: our cultural understanding that it's hard for it's hard for somebody like uh, Obama or anybody else really to have a good uh, a good hold in a set a good grasp of in a sense of of. of um, knowing how to prevent it. So he might think, well, I'm just letting everybody speak out, but 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 the women can be really mad about that because they, they think they're being judged, they think that, you know, and, and he wouldn't really be sensitive to it. So I, I'm just trying to sort of explain what, how, how it, it not justify how it might happen, but I'm trying to explain how it might happen and, and, and that you have to, I think you have to know this stuff to have a, a better sense. Of it. You know, I bet he doesn't. <laughs> you, might, you might know whether he does it or not, but I don't. <laughs> but I don't. I'm taking the
3: book next Okay, time.
2: all
3: right, here we go. The gentleman in the back. Yeah. Um, so some people might, uh, they hear your research, and one of the questions that I think naturally arises is um, context matters, of course. I'm a sociologist, and so I believe context matters but also self-identity matters. And the previous speaker in this series, uh, Camille Charles, talked about black like me, or really was about question of racial identity, black identity in particular. And I'm wondering, has there been any studies either with uh, recent black immigrants uh, to the U.S. um, or have there been any studies with black Americans Looking at the sort of strength of their black identity, uh, and to sort of see if you can move this stereotype threat based upon there. That is, one could look at your results and say the problem is people need to, in terms of race, de-racialize, or in terms of gender, people need to sort of, uh, you know, invest less in their gender as a narrative to understand these findings. And so, I guess the question is. Is there any research that shows that this threat occurs independent of whether or not one has a strong or weak gender identity, strong or weak black identity? or um, And then also related to immigrants, is the effect stronger among recent uh, immigrants who've been here a longer period of time than recent immigrants who wouldn't be as well-versed in the US culture?
1: yeah, well, I'm, I guess I'm disappointed
3: to hear that
1: you think uh, you need to disidentify with your race to have the right narrative. Uh, because I, I certainly wouldn't want to apply that. Uh, I, 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 I do understand the tension when I'm talking about the, the narrative here. Uh, there's a tension between being hypersensitive, for example, and being having false consciousness here. And I, I think it's really important to be realistic. To have a, a realistic uh, and thought-out narrative, to have some, some control over that narrative, I suppose, is what I'm talking about here, but I'm not talking about that. I don't see why it's necessary to weaken your identity, um, your group identity, to do that. I don't think that would help if you could do that, but I don't think that would, uh, would help. Um, with regard to identities, yes, uh, we did a study at, of black immigrants and found that you get stereotype threat effects For the second generation but not the first and uh, the first generation seemed to have I don't know if this is the best account or not I think it's a it's a finding uh, instead of finding that's open for interpretation but it seems to be the case that uh, if I'm if I don't I know the stereotype because for example the first-generation blacks do know the stereotype but they don't think they're going to be seen in terms of it there are, are they don't think it's going to happen that they're gonna they as individuals will be seen uh, that that way they have often different dialects different different home sense of, of home or different a lot of things that are different that that give that, that make the probability of them being seen that way seem weaker to them but for their their kids uh, born in the United States uh, you, you get the the standard effects uh, and again I think it's because they do have a sense that they're going to be seen that way, or could be seen that way. We don't have the same things to the same things available that that deflect it. So, you you can see where what I would prefer. I don't know whether it's true or not, but my preference is to put this thing in in the uh, social psychological zone here. I, I don't I, I uh, as a psychop- maybe I've been too reactive to psychology. I, I, I don't know, but I I don't think that you know the the particular um, strength of my Racial identity, say, or my gender identity, is so much the issue, because to me the pressure is comes from a simple intersubjective theory and the intersubjective or intersubjective awareness that I know how you could think about me in this situation. So whether I've got a, a weak identity or a strong identity. I still know how you could think about me in this situation because we're both members of this culture. I know what the stereotype is. I know it's relevant here. and I can, I can feel at risk of being judged and, and treated that way. And so my own sense of, of, of self, I, I'm not, I just don't know. I, I, I have, that, that could be theorized in a way that would be convincing to me, but I, I, I don't see it as the prime driver here. Uh, I, I see it as a the theory about the situation I'm in, the particular situation I'm in graduate school, being in a, becoming a psychologist. Uh, I see it as a theory about that, as, a, as, as much as a theory about my, my, the strength of my identity. The strength of my identity, that idea, I think, which is the lay idea, I think that comes from this psychologization of, of, of the experience that we tend to think it's all under my own control as, a, as an individual, that, that psychologically I can almost design my way uh, out of it.
5: Hi. Uh, thank you very much for speaking today. Um, I just wanted to ask. Th- this doesn't seem. I mean, your experiment is in no way a deception. It seems to me just reassurance. You know that that absent absent knowing about a situation, uh, people tend to be more cautious about and conservative about how they behave. So given a reassurance that, hey, don't worry, this test is not, you know, not a reflection on your ability as a person. People feel better about that. I was just curious um, if you saw any difference between giving that reassurance in person versus maybe formally writing that reassurance on the, on the instructions on the test or whatever, mm-hmm. if that had any effect.
1: Yeah, see, I think, uh, and this is where John's point, I think, is, is, uh, is an important point, that Uh, I I think it's difficult to, if if you think about a mass testing program, like ETS, the SAT, the GRE, all these testing programs, how would you, how would this research, uh, what would you do to prevent stereotype threat? uh, I, I think the problem there is you can't convince people that this is not a test of cognitive ability because the whole culture just assumes that those tests are
2: tests of cognitive ability. So that, and, and, and in addition to that, they're high stakes. We're
1: going to sit you down, and in a two- or three-hour period of time, we're going to give you one test that's gonna, that is so good, so good a measure of your intellectual capacity that we can take the single score we get from them and allocate opportunity to you for the rest of your life. That's basically what we assume when we, when we give a standardized test. We think the thing is, we, we just think it's a marvelous, almost magical thing. Uh, and So it has this powerful cultural uh, frame that would be difficult, I think, when a person is in the heat of taking a GRE exam, to, to do something that would get them to be as free of this pressure as they
5: are in our experiments. Right? I just think that's the... But then there's there's variability then between who's giving the reassurance also because some people, you know, I, I, I worked um, for community legal services in uh, East Palo Alto and uh, uh, j- just talking to a few people um, and they, they work with, you know, domestic violence victims and, and things of that sort and I was asking a, a friend of mine, you know, do you think you would, uh, there? there's a um, this This woman was Latin American, and so we were talking and, and she, she was telling me that uh, you know if if you're not if you're seeking help as a domestic violence victim you know you're even if the person has perfectly good intentions of wanting to help you you know if you're if you're a white male sitting in that position offering help they're going to be mistrustful of you versus you know if you're a Latin American woman sitting there who has some identifiable feature that they immediately relate to, that in a sense reassures them implicitly that okay, this person understands what I'm going through, and so I feel more comfortable, you know, seeking their help because of their particular you know, race rather than it, even if they're a perfectly compassionate white person sitting in front of them. So. Yeah, I think I mean I do think that's a circumstance that can definitely uh, be a
1: factor sometimes. Is who who gives the the assurance. Uh, although sometimes uh, you know in this work you can be surprised that the assurance can come from the outgroup too uh, uh, and, and be very powerful coming from the outgroup my academic advisor was white and no sophistication about race whatsoever, but uh, as I say, motivated by his own needs <laughs> uh,
3: he, 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 was, he was able to give the assurance you're talking about
1: and, and, and kind of get me
2: focused.
3: Well, we can
4: maybe take one more, and then um, I know Janice is going to make a couple of announcements for us. So, so I'm in the creator right now, looking at shaping these children who are going to go through all these external stereotype threats. And what you talked about are external narratives. And I'm wondering if any work has been done on cre- helping create lasting internal narratives that will help with these Challenges or threats going forward so that we can shape it before it becomes an overwhelming Threat
1: that's a good question. I, I, I think I'm working on my narrative every day uh, So I don't I don't think I think most of us are uh, Working on our understanding of, of situations um, Where you're you're trying to have your narrative be as, as, as realistic as possible not not to be a uh, where you don't have to be, and not to be vulnerable where you, where you should be aware of it. That's the, that's the, the, the tension, and uh, certainly uh, parents of, of um, I, I experience it, you know, parents of black kids, I'll just put it in terms of my own case, uh, you know, what, how much do you, do you tell them, and how, how do you, how, when do you tell them, and, and, and you, you don't want them to be just sort of, to set themselves up for some profound uh, disappointment. On the other hand you don't want to make them so vigilant that they can't that they can't turn around
2: or inform
4: them of a threat before they're even aware
1: yeah that there like is a such woman in
4: math you don't want to tell a first grader by the way you know women have yeah. trouble with math <laughs> yeah but it's some, and so
1: here's we, what everybody thinks and you <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so if you ever look
2: for an area of research helping I think that what is
0: works true. to help an
4: internal narrative that allows you whatever that threat is right.
2: To deal with it
1: would be yeah fabulous. I well you know this is, this is uh, this this is uh, that's a, you're exactly right I I think this is where if I was if I was going to do research
2: <laughs> this is where I would do
1: it uh, because I I think this narrative thing is a general thing we're talking about it in, this, in the context of these uh, identity threats. Uh, but of course it has to do with all kinds of uh, relationships and what's what's the nature of the relationship and what's it so that the, the, the kind of ongoing narrative grasp we have of these things it, it, I think it's a good mechanism important mechanism and it, it gives you it gives you a place where you can get a hold of the uh, of the process to some degree and, and I, I do think this is a particularly important one that that you you kind of want to uh, informed but but not overwhelmed and and one thing that I find in my own case I remember Jim Comer who was a great school reformer uh, gave me the advice that he gives that he gave to his students once and I think it's an, an example of what you what you're after he said that he told his students when uh, he, to use a three strikes rule uh, when you first think that something could be really racist and discriminatory don't don't think Then if it happens again, or something like that happens again, it's racist and discriminatory. Don't think And if it happens a third time, think it. (laughs) And do what you... And I think that's not bad advice, because you can see, it's not perfect advice. You can make an error, you know, and there's nothing going to be perfect here. But it does give you the psychological space to relax and function, identify. So you're not allocating all your energies to vigilance. You are uh, allocating, you've got some left over for for attention to the task at at, at hand. So I always thought it was a a good kind of short insight about that. Well, we can talk about this for a
2: long time. But let's, first of all, we can see why Claude was the recipient of his his teaching award. Let's thank you again.